Let's pray. Father, as we have sang and as we've heard just an awesome story of, of God and how you are at work uh, in this after-school project, and um, as we heard about your call of Shalom to make things whole, we also realize that there is brokenness in our world. There is violence and death and hatred, but at the same time, there is shalom, there is beauty, there is truth, there is justice. And Lord, we live in that tension. We live in the tension between acts of injustice and beautiful encounters of justice. And Lord, you call us, as you, Jesus, are the Prince of Shalom. You call us to be shalom makers in our world, in, in our relationships, in, in, the, in the community with each other. And so, Lord, guide and direct our conversation as we talk about what it looks like to extend your shalom, the shalom of God, into the places where we live, where we work, where we learn, <laughs> where we play. Give us... Um, Ideas Give us uh, ways of living into that. Show us what it, what it might look like as a community to be shalom makers. So God, our conversation, we pray. Amen. So we are entering into, as Nelson said, a two-week exploration into the last part of our vision of that being seeking the kingdom of God. And so over the last four weeks, we have unpacked the first two parts of our vision. Our vision as a whole that we spent some time last year working on and more time this year unpacking and seeing what it looks like to live it out is, is to pursuing truth, building a family, seeking the kingdom of God. And so for the first two weeks, we talked a lot about pursuing truth. Then we talked about building the family, and now we are seeking the kingdom of God. And so what I find interesting in this conversations is those three things, pursuing, building, and seeking, can be labeled so many different terms, so many different words. So you might think of discipleship, community, and mission. You may think um, communion, community, and commission. You may think in, up, in, and out. All of those kind of get at the th- power of three that we're talking all those three things coming together and working together, wholeness and healing in that. Uh, <clears throat> think of those three things as a Venn diagram. I don't know if you like Venn diagrams. I, I like Venn diagrams. Where they overlap, the three circles, is where someone once said is the kingdom becomes tangible. When you live in relationship with God, with other followers of Jesus, and out into the community of those who get to know Jesus. When you live those things balanced and whole, the kingdom comes tangible. And so, for the first two weeks, we talked about a lot about discipleship. We talked about the idea of, of our people uh, pursuing a close relationship with Jesus through spiritual practices. We talked about our people follow the way of Jesus in community together, we realize that you can't follow Jesus alone. I mean, you can try. It's not what we're supposed to do. 
And then the next two weeks, we looked at building a family. We talked about practicing these biblical one another's. There's like 59 biblical one another's. It's like love one another, pray for one another, accept one another, um, bear with each other's burdens, that kind of thing. And we talked about the idea of our family. Building a family means that our people are actually friends outside of Sunday morning. And then we talked last week about this idea of our people feel safe to share their stories. And so today we're turning the corner and we're looking at the last of the part. That of seeking the kingdom of God. And today our measure is this measure is our people extend the shalom of God to places where they live, work, learn, and play. That's why we spent time um, listening to that Bible project definition of what shalom is. If you've been with us any length of time, you know that that's one of my favorite words. I use it all the time. Because I think it, it goes beyond this idea of peace, right? Like we say peace and we always think, oh, well, absence of conflict or or no war. But shalom is, as it was saying, is about wholeness and putting things that are broken back into whole, the way things should be. And so to do that, to, to talk about the shalom of God and, and extending that, we're going to unpack this text in Jeremiah 29. Now, you might go, oh, Jeremiah 29, 11. I, yeah, no, that's not where we're, we're not using that one. Um, that's probably one of the most Pour it out of context verses that you'd ever want to uh, imagine. Um, have you ever seen those? There's, a, there's a, a coffee mug. I can do all things through a, 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 a text taken out of context, something like that. It's, it's pretty funny. But that's, one of, that's probably one of the number ones, like Jeremiah 29, 9, 11. But we're going to go right before that, Jeremiah 29, 1 to 7. And then we're going to see what that has to say to us this morning about extending the shalom of God. So this is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jehoiachin and the queen mother, the court officials and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the artisans had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted the letter to Elesh, son of Shaphan, and to Gemara, son of Hilkai, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. It said, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace. That word there, you know what it is. It's shalom. Seek the shalom and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So what we see in this text is a letter that Jeremiah is sending to the exiles who have been taken into Babylon in roughly 597 BC. Now they were taken into exile. Did you notice who they were? It says this, they were the elders, the priests, the prophets, the royalty, the queen mother, the king, the artisans, 
you get the sense of who these people are. They're kind of the upper echelon of Jerusalem. The people with power and people with status and people with privilege. The people who were left behind were the poor. The people who didn't have lots of money, didn't have lots of resources. But there would be two more uh, dispersions into Babylon. In 587 and 582, they would take them into exile. But in 587 was when Babylon would come in, destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple. And so they were displaced. They were people without a homeland. And so the questions began to unravel because of this placement. They became fundamental questions of, of what, how do we worship Yahweh in a foreign land? Is it even possible to do that? I mean, after all, we're no longer in Jerusalem. And the, the main uh, trapping, if you will, the main part of our religion is centered around a building that is no longer there. Can you worship Yahweh in a foreign land? The priests are all in Babylon. The whole system is upended. In fact, what we, you read in Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There, sorry, there on the populars, we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us to sing songs. Our tormentors demanded the songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? There was a belief in the ancient Near East that most people, and maybe not, the, not, the um, not those from the Israelites, but a lot of others believed that certain gods had certain domains. If you, actually, in the Old Testament, it said one time, they're like, oh, well, they won the battle in the mountains. So their god must be a god of the mountains. But if we get them down on the plains, we'll be able to defeat them because their god, again, is a, a god of the mountains. So there was that belief that, that a deity had a place. And if you move places, you went to a different deity. But Yahweh had power over all. So they, this being in exile led the people of Israel to ask these questions. And, but what is that metaphor? They are, they're in exile, okay? And actually one of the metaphors that we could even use for our present day situation where we are seeking to follow the way of Jesus and live out the kingdom in the midst of our post-Christian, and some would say in the West, some would say in our own Babylon, is this idea of exile. In fact, actually, as I was writing, this happens almost every week. Not every week, but a lot. I'm writing, I'm thinking about something, I'm working on a sermon, I happen to pop up on Facebook, and somebody quotes somebody or something so one, one writer, David Fitch, on Thursday, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm like starting to like pull together all the pieces that I've been reading and thinking about all week long. And on Thursday, this is what he said. 
The call from Jeremiah 29 to seek the welfare of the city cannot make sense as a call to our churches without the concomitant call to exile status in America. And I was like, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Like, literally, it was on Thursday. But what does it look like to follow the way of Jesus and the kingdom in the midst of exile when it looks like all the religious trappings have maybe have gone up in smoke? Is it possible for the church in America to follow the way of Jesus without buildings, pastors, programs, money, is it possible? And now I'm not saying that, that most of us understand even what it looks like to be in exile. Most of us have power and position, right? But there are many within the West who don't and who probably, not probably, who do understand this metaphor of exile way better, especially way better than me, white male. But there is something to be said about this metaphor. That I'm actually glad that the church in the West is losing its places of power. I know some people would consider that anathema. But I believe it's the most beautiful thing. Because the church is made to flourish on the margins. And not in the places of power. Because when you get into power, you have to then believe in that power. And then you have to keep that power. And so much of keeping that power is about fear and then violence. And the way of Jesus is not about power, fear, and violence. And so a church becomes the church, in my opinion, when we are on the margins. We are in the midst of our own Babylon. And while the United States might not be empire, it is definitely imperialistic-like, at least. So what does it look like to take the letter to Jeremiah, sending to, the le- to those exiled in Babylon, and apply it to our current-day reality? So these uh, people of God the Israelites, are taken into Babylon, taken out of their homeland, ripped from their homeland, ripped from everything they know, to a place about 900 miles away. They live in a foreign land where they don't understand the language, the food, the customs, the religions. They're all foreign. And in fact, not only are they foreign, the people, they don't want to even know them. They don't have a desire to learn. And so this letter gets delivered to them. And what does it say? Well, first thing that I noticed is this. Did you notice in verse 4 and verse 7? It says, send this, like verse 4 talks about, send the letter, uh, deliver it to the people. I, the Lord, have sent you into exile. In verse 7, it says that too. Yahweh is the one who sent them into exile. They, he, God used Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon to bring judgment upon the people of God because of their idolatry, because of their disobedience, and because of their sin. He uses a pagan nation to bring judgment. It's not saying that he favored Babylon. 
but he was using them to bring his people back into the way they should be. I mean, the call from the very beginning of the scriptures, of the story of God, is in Genesis 12. Genesis 12 is Abrahamic covenant. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people on earth will be blessed through you. That was God's call to his people to be a blessing to all creation. And they failed. So God uses Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon to, to bring them into judgment so that they would then turn and live out this call. Now, if you look at Genesis 12 and you look at the letter, you realize that there's some overlap. But Yahweh sent them there. You and I have been sent to the places where we live, where we work, where we learn, where we play. You've been sent. God has put you there for a reason. You might have just said, well, it was the cheapest house, so I bought it. Or it was the open job, and so I just got it. God, and then maybe that's from your perspective, that's what happened. But God is working and saying, no, I've placed you here for a season, for a time, and for a reason. We've been sent the same calling to be a blessing to the places where you live, the places where you work, the places where you play, where you learn. And so then Jeremiah says, okay, God is saying this. I've sent you there, but what did I send you there to do? Well, it's hold your horses. It's really radical. It's crazy. It's up, upside down, radical thing. What does he say? He says this. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those that I carried in exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not increase. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've called you in exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now, everything in four to six sounds unradical, unsexy, normal, right? Verse seven now sounds pretty radical when you know the context. But what you got to realize is verse four to six is upending the people who were taken to exile, their expectation, because their false prophets were saying, hey, don't settle down. Don't get comfortable. Because it's only going to be two years. You're going to be here two years and that is it. And Jeremiah is saying, uh-uh. God's saying 70 years. There's three and a half generations there. So the people who get born in Babylon never knew Jerusalem that they go back to. And so they're saying, no, build houses, plant gardens, marry, have sons and daughters and grandchildren. It's that creational mandate, right? To multiply. Do not decrease, but increase. In fact, I found a commentary that says this. Jeremiah counseled the exiles to normalize living in exile, build houses, grow food, marry. He even told them to pray for the foreign land and seek its welfare. The leaders and people wanted to do, the exactly, do, to do exactly the opposite. 
They wanted to resist and to assume that the exile would end in relatively short time. Jeremiah offered hope, but not on the people's terms. The hope would come in the long run. It's not easy to live in exile. It's not easy for for people who would have places of power and might and authority to lose that. Because then what you want to do is grasp a hold of that and keep it. As opposed to what Jesus calls to do is to let it go. So these exiles in Babylon, God's saying, settle down. You're going to be here for a while. You're going to be here for 70 years. Now, they have some options. Do they listen to Jeremiah or not? Here's a couple options they could do. The way to engaging in being exiled. And so what? Also, too, you and I, as exiles in our own Babylon, can do these three things, too. Well, first, they could have been tempted to withdraw from the world of Babylon and create their own little enclave of Jewish life. Create this ethnic ghetto, if you will. Never engage with anyone else. Just be tight. Create your own little holy huddles, so to speak. Secondly, they could have been tempted to rise up and try to overthrow the empire through violence and force. Violent rebellion. Or force them to say, no, you're going to release us. Send us home. That is the second thing. Or third, they could just say, you know what? To make this really easy, let's just be culturally Babylonian. Let's take on Babylonian names. Let's learn the language. Let's be a part of their religion. Let's just kind of be Babylonian so that we don't have to, like, worry about problems. Just go along with the flow. But there was a fourth option. That is to seek for the shalom of Babylon. Someone said they were called to be in Babylon, not of Babylon, but for Babylon. Let me say that again. I loved it. It said to be in Babylon, but not of Babylon, but for Babylon. Same with us, right? We're not called to be in the world, the empire. We're not of, we, well, we're in, we're in the culture. We're not of the culture, but we're supposed to be for the people, not against. And so he tells them to pray and work for the flourishing, the shalom of their people, of the people who literally took them into exile, who drugged them and forced them out of their homeland. Their enemies, he says, love them, pray for them. Sounds kind of familiar. A couple hundred years later, a man comes and says, love your enemy, pray for your enemy. Um, in case you don't know that man's Jesus, just, just so we're making sure we know, we know we're talking about Jesus here. In verse 7, again, the word is shalom. To seek the shalom of Babylon, the wholeness, the way things should be, the flourishing, because their flourishing is wrapped up in the flourishing of the city to which they are part of. So what does it look like? What did it look like? And there's not a lot of uh, uh, things to grasp a hold of. What does it look like to seek the peace of Babylon? 
I mean, were, were they told to plant gardens so that they could not only feed their family, but feed their neighbors from Babylon? Probably. What else? We don't, we don't really know, but here's a, here's a few things. It says it right there. It says, pray for Babylon. They called to pray for their enemies. They became um, to work for the absence of conflict. Maybe there was neighborhood conflict. They would get in the midst of that and help to solve it. They would be shalom makers. They'd be working for peace. If it meant wholeness, they could find areas where there was not wholeness and work to bring wholeness in that place. So, what about us? If we're seeking the kingdom of God, what does it look like to extend the shalom of God, the peace, the wholeness, the prosperity, and don't think financially? Although that might be a part of it too. The completeness of God in the places where we live, work, learn, and play. Do you pray for the places where you live, where you work, where you learn, where you pray? I mean, where you play. What's broken in your neighborhood? What's broken in your relationships? What's broken in your places of employment? Maybe you don't know. Ask people who've been there a while and say then, Lord, okay, what can I do to be a part of the completeness, the wholeness that you want to do here? Where is there conflict in your own families, in your own school, work, neighborhoods, to work for peace in that? And here are a couple things off the top of my head that I thought about for Veritas. How do we know what's broken is we walk and we pray. We get engaged in nonprofits that are working for the wholeness and flourishing of Lancaster, and we do it together. And those might not be Christian. Because believe it or not, some Christian nonprofits are can actually crazily do the work of the kingdom even when they don't realize it's the king of that kingdom. And then uh, you know, things like understanding what the kingdom looks like. There's this uh, eight-week journey called the tangible kingdom primer that in the future that we're looking at going to and, and to help us be part of the flourishing of the kingdom in this world. So we're going to spend some time talking about the text and talking about ideas of how you sense God calling you to extend the shalom of God.